step down into darkness Open my eyes, let me that made this heart adore you, of a life spent with you, and here I am worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say.
yourself to him this morning. Let's just raise our hands and worship him just for a few minutes. That line, here I stand in Isaiah 6, the prophet tells the Lord, here I am, send me. Amen. Can we say that from the bottom of our hearts? Here I am. He asked, who shall I send? Who will go? We say, here I am, send me. But you know what? When he asked the Lord what he was being sent for, he said, you're going to preach to a generation that's not going to listen. They're going to hear without perceiving. They're going to see without viewing. They're going to hear without listening. Amen. It's not what he wanted to hear. That's not the kind of message that you want to bring forth. And you know, when we, when we witness to Christ, we're doing so largely to a world that's going to hear without listening. They're going to see without perceiving. Isaiah said, how long? And he said, until the land is laid waste. Amen. The Lord Jesus is coming soon. And we're going to work until he comes, even if we don't see that fruit. But God told him there'll be a stump left in Israel that's going to grow. Amen. I thank God for this remnant. Let's sing it. Let's sing this song a cappella and just raise your hand, sing it to him, no matter how it's received, no matter how hard it is. We're not, we're not. We're not taking this message forward because it's something that makes us feel good. It's not because it's something that, that uh, brings us fame, that brings us uh, any kind of personal glory. We do it in the face of all that because it's a command from the Lord, and it's what's good, and it's what can heal us and what can heal our land. If people would just see and perceive, hear and listen, amen. Let's sing that together a cappella and just re- raise your hands and worship him as we sing. I give myself away I give myself away So you can use me I give myself away Sing it to him I give myself away So you can use me I give myself away Sing it to the Lord I give myself away Make me a tool in your hands, Jesus Can you use me? I give myself away No matter what it takes, Lord No matter how my message is received, Lord Jesus I give myself to you, Lord Jesus Bring this forward to your people, Lord Jesus. Can you use me? I give myself away. Use me, Lord. Oh, I give myself away. So you can use me. Amen. Please have your seats this morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I pray that that'll be on all of our minds today as we go forward. A tool in the hands of the master can do so much more, amen, than um, we think to ourselves, if I give myself away, if I give myself to you, Lord, am I giving up my freedom? Am I giving up my autonomy? But you know what? When you are in the hands of the master, 
that's going to bring your own self to greater heights than you ever could have perceived and known that you could attain on your own. Amen. Let's just, let's just give our hearts to him, give our hands to him. No matter what he asks, let that be our prayer this morning. Lord, I want to do hard things for you. Lord Jesus, just use me in ways that I could have never used myself. Amen. In the way of announcements this morning, we do have a youth meeting this afternoon. It's going to be at 3 p.m., ages 13 and up in the fellowship hall, uh, I believe with Brother Rapp. So that's going to be really exciting. Um, uh, there is a youth event next Sunday, age 13 and up, afternoon. And uh, Brother Peter and Sister Rachel will be sending out some details. Saturday? I'm sorry, it is Saturday. Saturday and Sunday look very similar when they're written like that. <laughs> Youth event, 13 plus, next Saturday afternoon. So Peter and Rachel will be sending out more information about that. So go ahead and mark your calendars, amen? It's going to be a great event. Um, there is a children's choir meeting this afternoon, uh, right after church. So um, I'd encourage all the young children to stay around. Most know about it. If you don't, uh, please stay around for that. Amen. But let's just turn around where you are in your seats there and greet one another in the lovely name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So good to be in church this morning. I have a maker. Amen. He formed my heart.
go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for this beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord. It's such an opportunity. Lord Jesus, during the years of COVID, when it was so hard to assemble together, all across the country, so many hearts grew cold. Lord, when they, they couldn't see believers face to face and the Holy Spirit just moving back and forth one to another in the assembly. Lord God, to be in the presence of fellow believers and hearts joining together, voices joining together in song. Lord God, we're so appreciative that we can come here like this. The day may come when we cannot gather together. We've said that for years. Will we remain strong, Lord Jesus? Lord God, thank you for this opportunity. I say it again, Lord God, just to be here and in the house that we've built together and worship you. I pray you'll bless everyone that's among us today. Lord, you know, you hear, you see. Lord, you understand. I thank you for it. I pray you'll reach down and touch each one as they have need. We just thank you for your presence. Thank you for your mighty love. In Jesus' name, amen. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you, all of my days, I long to praise, of your
You're my comfort. You're my shelter. Amen. come forward for the offering. I'd like um, Sister Jane and Sister Tina to make your way forward here. We've got some uh, seats laid out. And Brother Clayville, I think we might need to adjust the mics. They've drooped a bit. And um, I've got a special for you this morning that I'm going to join them on. And so, uh, Brother Tommy, if you would lead us to the Lord in prayer. Amen. As the deacons pass you, you may take your seat. <clears throat> we fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of your mercy and love at the feet of After this song, we're going to get you and Sister Jane to sing a, a song together. And uh, Sister Tina is uh, playing the mandolin, you might see there. And I tell you what, she has really been seeking the Lord on uh, 
bringing this song to you today. It's a beautiful song. I'm going to join in on them a little bit on the fiddle. And uh, But let's just, uh, I'm so appreciative that she has stepped out of her box in order to uh, to have this song for us. So let's just worship the Lord with Sister Tina and Sister Jane. Appreciate that. Yes, I know I did. Come on up, Brother Earl. Stand wherever you want to. You. That's fantastic. I like it that way. Now, this song, you know the chorus. I think everybody here knows the chorus. But uh, I found this book. Some of you may have seen it. And they had verses for the chorus. So, um, anyway, hopefully you'll be blessed. And <clears throat> when Earl brought this up, um, I did a little looking and digging on the Internet, and I found the most wonderful story about this song. I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a missionary named Darla Rose. Um, she went to, um, well, she, was, she and her first husband 
went to um, Southeast Asia. They were in Papua New Guinea. And they were, she was the first white woman ever seen by this tribe they worked with. And this was prior to World War uh, II. And they were there and serving the people there. And then when the Japanese soldiers came in, they were arrested. They were put in prison. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and she and her husband were separated. They put men in one prison camp and women in another. And they were treated unbelievably bad. Um, the, the torture, the abuse, the, the starvation, the disease. And while she was there in, in her prison camp, she found out that her husband had died. And, and it got worse because then they, the soldiers decided that she was a spy and they would take her in to interrogate her for hours and every time they said, you're a spy, and she'd say, I'm not a spy, they'd either hit her in the back of the neck or hit her in the front of, the, of her forehead and she would walk around with black eyes and, and you know, she thought at one point that her neck was broken. Anyway... Um, it's a long and amazing story of the diseases that they had and everything. And the thing that was so cool is that this is the song that upheld her through that terrible time. This is the song that just rang in her heart and kept her going. Um, she was released and came back to the United States and kind of recovered. She remarried, and she and her husband went back and spent 40 years ministering to the people in Papua New Guinea. It's just an amazing story. I just, I was so blessed when I read it. Fear not, little flock, from the cross to the throne, from death into life he went for his own. All power in all power above is given to him for the flock of his love. Only believe, only believe, all things are possible. Only believe, only believe, only believe, all things are possible. Only believe. Fear not, little flock, he goeth ahead. Your shepherd selecteth the path you must tread. The waters of Bara is sweetened for thee. He drank all the bitter in Gethsemane. Only believe. are possible, only believe, only believe, only believe, all things are possible, only believe. Fear not, little flock, whatever your law, he enters all rooms, the doors being shut, he never forsakes he never is gone, so count on his presence in darkness and dawn. Only believe, 
Only believe, all things are possible. Only believe, only believe, only believe, all things are possible. Let's stand and sing, amen. Only believe. Only believe. All things are possible. Only from Brother Chanel, her brother Brian. He has to see a surgeon on Tuesday. He's been a lot of back pain, a lot of pain, I think, and uh, they think it's a hernia, actually, but they're not certain. Gary Whitlock is home with back problems as well. Any others here by the uplifted hand? Amen. I tell you what, with this song on our minds, Lord Jesus, um, we have so many issues that we deal with day to day. Lord, but I can almost hear those voices in prison lifting up the words of only believe. Not allowed to have a Bible, not allowed to have a songbook, but just that song that it's imprinted in our hearts, Lord Jesus, that all things are possible. Lord, we just want to believe. Lord, to bring these prayer requests to you this morning, I pray that you'll touch everyone here, Lord Jesus. Those that lifted their hands, Lord, you know their need. Sometimes only you are able to look through and and see what's on someone's heart, Lord, and they can't even speak it. Lord Jesus, just go down deep into our hearts. Look in all all the dark places, Lord Jesus. Look at where all the hurt that we've been hiding, Lord God. Just reach in with your healing touch and apply a balm there. And just lead us forward into the light. Bring us healing bring us faith dispel doubts ease our pain Lord Jesus we ask this in your name amen as brother rap comes only believe only Only be 
Lord bless you all this morning. It's really good to, to be here amongst you again. You may be seated for just a moment here. It feels like it wasn't that long ago that I was uh, here previously. Enjoyed uh, that weekend with, uh, with Brother Chris and y'all talking about uh, how we live in the, a dark culture. But just thinking as we were singing the song, Only Believe, it is really dark outside. But we can believe, and that's the, that's the way through. And the Lord will be, will, will be with us. In this, uh, in this very time, um, Brother John asked me to mention these again. Again, there's a youth meeting this afternoon at uh, 3 p.m., ages 13 up in the fellowship. The meeting's this afternoon, but I heard the event is next week. So the event's next week. That sounds interesting, too. And then the children's choir practice this afternoon, also uh, after, uh, um, after this morning's service. We'll be looking forward to, to those. I bring uh, greetings from my family. I won't be singing any, any song, folks. I, I try to stay in my lane best I can. But um, greetings from my uh, family and, uh, and Brother Paul and the church back, uh, back home. Uh, I always enjoy coming down here. It uh, feels, uh, feels real at home, real easy to, to speak to you all. Thank you for making me feel so welcome uh, so many times. Um, this morning, I want to, to take a little bit of a um, from a series I've been speaking back uh, home on, on Wednesday nights. Uh, last year, Brother Paul um, asked if we could kind of go through the Church Age book, and we did a Sunday school class on that for uh, a, about a year, and then uh, been doing it on Wednesday nights um, uh, every other Wednesday night. And I just want to say um, that's been a real blessing uh, to me. The best way to learn sometimes is to is to teach it. And it's been a real good uh, experience for me. And I just want to uh, encourage, sometimes uh, the church age book uh, seems so intimidating, it's really hard to get into. How could I ever understand anything in there? Well, I want to encourage you, take a, take a step forward, because uh, those, that's the devil putting those, those thoughts in there. I, I like reading some of Brother Branham's opening prayers, especially opening prayers um, to sermons that we think are really, really deep. Because the opening prayer always brings it real simple. He says, Lord, would you help us just today to see the time that we're living in, how that we could better live in this time that we're living in. And that's, that's that simple. And today, um, I want to take a look at uh, um, part of this message to the uh, church in Pergamos, uh, which we find in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, so perhaps we can, uh, we can read there, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. That's where we'll, where we'll start. I'm going to... Um, take a look at the doctrine of, of Balaam, or the teaching of Balaam. And uh, we'll start, um, kind of get a, a bit of a running start. Remember, uh, Brother Chris Take, when he was here, talked about in the shadow of Babel. And, uh, and Brother Branham talks about how that's where um, the Nicolaitan spirit started. That's where you can see the root of uh, demonic worship. That's where it started. So we're going to go there, start there. I won't spend too much time um, back in uh, Genesis, but we'll look at that and then gradually move, move forward. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which, saith, which, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And it's interesting, as, um, as Christ speaks to each every church age, he speaks to them and he identifies himself by certain attributes. And I think it's. Uh, I think we can. Each church age can draw from the attributes of Christ that He's identifying Himself with at the beginning of the age, because that's what they. That's the answer to the trial that they're going to be going through. Verse thirteen: I know thy works, 
and where where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and you hold fast my name, and have not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. And those three uh, parts, I've never really looked at it as those three parts that are underlined, the stumbling block, eating things sacrificed to idols, and committing fornication. I'd never really thought about it this way, but those are three key components of Balaam's teaching. And we'll look at that further. But that doctrine of Balaam was, a, was the stumbling block for the church in Pergamos. And he says, you also have them there that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And in the Ephesian church age, uh, Brother Branham talks about, uh, um, he mentions it in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, that there, um, the deeds of the Nicolaitans uh, were being done. And the Nicolaitan spirit is where one man comes and, and, and dominates an assembly and, and human leadership uh, takes over Holy Spirit leadership. And in the Ephesian church age, it was just deeds that were being done. But as this it had progressed to the extent where in the second church, in the third church age, it wasn't just deeds, they've now been able to justify them. So um, we can look at that in our own lives. Sometimes we go as we, we, we can start allowing things to come into our lives that we know really aren't good, but they're just kind of accept, um, things that we do as the exception. But gradually, as we do more and more of it, it's not the exception anymore, but we gradually develop our own little justification for it. This is okay what I'm doing. And that's kind of the progression you see from Ephesus up to Pergamos. In Ephesus, it's happening here and there, and it's not right. And the people doing it also recognize it's not right. But by the time they get to Pergamos, there's a justification for it. Anybody who's going to accuse me of doing something wrong, I've got a word or two for them. Um, so this is, this is a greater acceptance and, and, and um, legitimate, um, the, this, what, what's not right has, has, has achieved legitimacy. Repent, he says, or else I come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And then lastly, there is a reward to every age. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give the heat of the eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. And we just uh, pray the Lord will bless his word to us this morning. Um, one of the things that Brother Brandon talks about, um, he speaks how in this Pergamian age, uh, it was the time when church and state were, were wedded, when Constantine is able to bring the political elements of his empire together with the religious elements, with these bishops who are doing their own thing, and he brings them together into one, church and state being brought together. But he says the Babylonian religion was officially joined to the first church. I'm not going to tell the story about the first church now, but just give it briefly. Um, after um, after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, um, um, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they got more, persecuted more and more frequently, especially in the days of uh, Saul of Tarsus. And these Jewish Christians were not all over. And some of them even got into Rome. And they established a church there. And this was the first church of Rome. It was preaching the truth. 
However, uh, I forget the year, but Cla- uh, one of the emperors um, doesn't like the Jewish influence in his capital, and he expels all the Jews. And Paul talks about it in the book of Acts. And the, all the Jews are expelled from Rome for about uh, 13 or 15 years, I believe. So here you've got this new church. It's just established, the first church of Rome, as it were, just established. And then all the leaders, because the leaders would have been Jewish, they have to leave. So you have all these new Gentile believers in this first church of Rome, and the devil sees this as a situation. These folks are just ripe for the picking. And gradually, while the, while the leaders are gone, uh, false doctrine enters in. And 15 years later, when Jewish, leaders are, when Jewish Christians are able to come back, they come back to visit the first church of Rome that they had established, that, was, that had been founded in truth, and it's not believing the truth anymore. There have been idolatry brought in, paganism has been, been, been brought in, and the first church of Rome does not want to have the Jewish Christians back. They don't want to have anything more to do with the truth because now they have their own way. So the Jewish Christians establish a second church of Rome, and the second church of Rome is actually established on biblical gospel truth. But the first church of Rome and the second church of Rome didn't get along because the devil was going to be persecuting them. And this was actually a situation that Satan had dreamed of. Because, as the quote says on the board, Satan now had access to the name of Christ. There had been a church established, this first church of Rome, ostensibly uh, worshiping Jesus Christ. And now Satan has gotten in there, and he's the head of it. And he is enthroned as God in worship. This is what he's been wanting all along. It kind of makes me think, um, last, uh, last summer, um, um, my wife's Instagram account that she'd been working on for, for, some, for, for years and gotten a certain number of followers and we were, it had been going nice. We'd be getting free things every now and then because uh, she could put a post up. We'd get some free home decor items, which I always like free home decor items because otherwise home decor items can get very expensive. Um, but yeah, the account was hacked. And I just thought, wow, this person now has access to our name. This person has access to whatever pictures that are on there. We try as hard as we can because we did not set up two-step authentication. Word to the wise. We had not gotten that set up. And Instagram does not have a, uh, a customer service center that you can call. There's no people, I think, that work at Instagram. It's all algorithms. Um, but, yeah, nothing happened. The account was, uh, it was gone. And that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that happened in this first church of Rome. Satan had hacked into the church, and now he's able, with the name of Christ above the church, a cross on the steeple, he's able to send all these messages out to the world as though he is the one that is being worshipped. And he was being worshipped under the name of Christ, however. And Jesus Christ speaks to John, and he's saying, I know where you dwell. You are dwelling where Satan's seat is, you folks in the age of Pergamos. It's a dark time. You're dwelling where Satan's seat is. And uh, Christ knows the situation that we live in. He knows the culture that we live in. He knows the challenges that we face. That's why he sends a message. He sends an anointing so we can overcome it. And Brother Bram says, Pergamos was indeed the throne and dwelling place of Satan though it was not originally the place where Satan dwelt. Babylon had always been this literal and figurative headquarters. It was in the city of Babylon that satanic worship had its origin. 
So I'm going to kind of take a step back and trace this, what the devil's been trying to do all along. He sees Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, and this is this, God's established this covenant relationship with them, and he wants as quickly as possible to break that covenant, break that fellowship, because he doesn't want to have anybody receiving, he wants to be receiving worship. He doesn't want anybody giving God worship. He doesn't want anybody to have fellowship with God. He wants to break that. And he thinks he had achieved. Then the, the world is evil. God destroys the world. And Satan thinks, as this flood is going, says, yes, I finally got him now because God, he's so angry with his creatures. He's, Satan's projecting his own emotions upon God that God's just going to violently destroy the whole thing and nothing will ever come back. And then Satan sees this after the flood. After all the earth had been destroyed. Satan can't comprehend it. But Noah comes out and his family, and the very first thing they do is not with their fist in God's face, they bow and worship. Satan can't imagine, how could God have creatures like this? How could there be a God who doesn't just destroy the earth and leave it and let it be? But now there's worship. God's accepting of the worship, and then this rainbow streaks across the sky, and God pronounces another covenant relationship. This is what Satan had been trying to destroy in the beginning, and he sees it happening again, and he's not going to let it stay that way very long. He's got to figure out some way that he can break up this new fellowship between God and man. And it doesn't take Satan very long to start to spin his own story of what the flood was all about. And his spokesman for his set of alternate facts um, was none other than the Nimrod of history. And we can look in Genesis chapter 10. We can see a genealogy. Cush begat a man named Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. And like Brother Chris had mentioned, after the flood, uh, there becomes a fear between uh, the animals and and man. Um, The animals are no longer tame, and animals are are populating the earth much faster than the humans are. So it can be tricky if you're trying to have agriculture. You have to protect your family, your supplies from uh, the lions, the tigers, and the bears. So anybody who can protect his people well will become a mighty person. And Nimrod was just that uh, kind of a person. In verse 9 it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it said even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. But this is not before the Lord in the sense that, thank you, Lord, for the gift and the strength you've given me. Help me. No, Nimrod is putting himself out in front of the Lord before the people. He wants, to have, he wants the people to put him before the Lord. And that's why Brother Branham says that we see all Nicolaitan religion having their roots in Genesis because the idea of Nicolaitanism is putting something else, a man's leadership, before God's leadership. That, this, is, this is where it starts. And um, he was the first mighty one on the earth. He was, his name means rebellion. He was the first tyrant. He sets himself up before the Lord, leading the people in rebellion against God. And um, his influence was great. After Babel, um, they, the people take this uh, story of Nimrod, and his name appears in all mythologies around the world under, un, under various names. His, his influence was great, and Satan was using him to spin a different story of the flood. In Genesis 11, he comes up again. Um, 
We have the story of the Tower of Babel being built. We know this story. They all say, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name. We want to make our name great so that we won't ever again be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. He wanted to put himself beyond the reach of God so that he could really do whatever he wanted to do without fear of divine judgment. He'd seen how the earth had been destroyed before uh, with, with the flood, and this is his way of countering it. And I was uh, reading parts of Hislop's uh, book, Two Babylons, and um, Hislop goes back and uh, um, tries to draw out what, what, what Nimrod was teaching. His all tradition from the earliest times bears testimony to the apostasy of Nimrod and his success in leading men away from the faith of their fathers, the patriarchal faith, and delivering their minds from that awe of God and fear of the judgments of heaven that must have rested on them while the memory of the flood was recent. After the flood had come, that was an event that people didn't forget very quickly. Satan didn't want them to remember that. So he's, he's using Nimrod to deliver them from this awe of God. Don't worry about God so much. You'll be fine. But it takes a long time for him to get them away from the memory of the flood. He wants to lead them away from the patriarchal faith. And, it, he, and Hislop talks about uh, um, how after, after the flood had happened... Um, to the people, to Noah and his family, and their and the and the first couple of generations, it would have been very clear how close heaven and earth were, because there would have been the stories, of course, that Noah talking with God, and you could see the rainbow had an even greater meaning to them than it would have to us. But heaven and earth were were were, were very close. God seemed very near to earth. And um, to maintain this union between heaven and earth would have been the grand aim of anyone who loved God and the interest of the race. But this implied, if we want to stay close to God, this implied restraining and, and looking away from all the pleasures of sin. And from this bondage, Noah and, his, Noah and Shem would have been teaching their family, you have to do what's right. If you, go, if, if you go into sin, it's going, to, it's going to lead you astray. It's going to lead you into, into judgment. And this was this, this word of God, Nimrod called it bondage. And he wanted to free everybody from the bondage that Noah was teaching. And by the apostasy he introduced, by the free life he developed among those who rallied around him, by separating them from holy influences that had previously controlled them, he helped them to put God and the strict spirituality of his law at a distance that everybody could breathe freely now that they were at liberty. But can you see how freedom and bondage is completely reversed in Nimrod's teaching? He's saying the law of God, the principles of Scripture that Noah's teaching, that is a straitjacket. I will get you out of that straitjacket so you can do whatever you want, so you can breathe freely, and that will be liberty. So right is bondage, sin is liberty, and this is all being mixed up already way back in the day of Nimrod. That spirit's still here. 
According to the system which Nimrod was the grand instrument in introducing, men were led to believe a real spiritual change of heart was not necessary. And as far as change was needful, they could be regenerated by mere external means. Just get some more education and you'll be a better person. You don't have to have God change your life. You can, you can just read a self-help book and you'll be fine. It's evident he led mankind to seek their chief good in sensual enjoyment, showing them how they could enjoy the pleasures of sin without the fear of wrath of a holy God. This is the doctrine of Nimrod. You can do what you want. Don't fear any consequences. This is the way of liberty. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to break this covenant relationship that God is symbolizing with the rainbow. He sees this covenant relationship, this union between God and man being restored, and Satan's going right away to try to chip away at it. And this does go all the way around the world. Um, Historical accounts tell us that Nimrod married a woman named Semiramis, but Nimrod was later killed. After his death, she became pregnant, had a, a son, but she said this son was simply Nimrod being reincarnated. So you have a, a mother um, and, and father, and the father is also a, a son. And it's spread throughout the world, as you can see through the different images. The mother-son false religion is, is known throughout the world, and as well in the Roman Catholic Church. But nothing is typed anywhere in the Bible of the nominal church but that fourth unity of the Tower of Babel. This is where we see it starting. It was by Nimrod, a wicked man, who went out and forced all the little countries to come into one place, this great tower. That's where we see denominational religion starting to be typed in the Old Testament. Then we're going to fast forward. Satan thinks um, after the... After the uh, he, he follows Shem's line along, and he's, he, he's, he's observing what's going on, and he sees... Uh, uh, Shem's line, he sees Abraham, and then he finally sees uh, the children of Israel being, uh, uh, being there, in, there, there in Egypt. And as long as the Jews were there in Egypt, Satan must have thought that he had been able to foil any of Jehovah's plans um, to bruise the serpent's head. Um, he was briefly panicked after the Exodus when all the Jews leave because, oh, this could be the sign that this is something going to happen now. But as he just watches the Jews traipsing through the wilderness, he says, I don't have to be afraid of any of these guys. This isn't going to be such a big problem at all. But um, as they get closer and closer to the promised land after 40 years of wandering, Satan has to take a picture like this a little more seriously. Here you've got the tribes of Israel gathered around the throne of God that's enthroned there between the cherubims on the Ark of the Covenant. The Shekinah glory is coming down. And here you've got people, many have been killed in the wilderness, but here you have people who have been following God all this way for 40 years. And they're almost to the promised land. It looks like this renewed relationship between God and man is starting to strengthen And he can't have a covenant like this coming up again. Whenever Satan sees this covenant getting stronger, he's going to send in something to go against it. And we can see that still today. And if we look in the book of Numbers, take a look in Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers uh, 21, Israel is... They're coming up out of the wilderness. This is not the group 
um, that, that goes and sends 12 spies into the land, and they come back doubting. This is not the Kadesh Barnea group. This is the group after that has gone through the wilderness for 40 years. All the, all the, uh, the, all the, uh, the, 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 the 10 spies and those who believe them, Korodath and Abiram, they died in the wilderness. They're gone. This is that group who's been with Moses all through the years. And now they're finally coming up, getting ready to come into the promised land. And in Numbers 21, we see in verse 21, Israel sends messengers into a man named Sihon, king of the Amorites. Let me pass through your land. Sihon wouldn't let it. And uh, verse 24, Israel smote him with the edge of the sword. They possessed his land from Arnon unto Jabbok, even unto the children of Ammon. And then... Uh, um, and then uh, in verse 31, Israel already was dwelling in the land of the Ammonites. And then verse 32, Moses sends to spy out Jezer and took the villages thereof and drove out the Amorites that were there. Verse 33, they turned and went up the way of Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan went out against him. And the Lord said to Moses, Fear him not, I have delivered him into thy hand. And verse 35, they smote him and his sons and all his people until there was none left him alive, and they possessed his land. They've made it through 40 years in the wilderness. They've got victory ever against the Amorites. Victory against another group. Victory. This is these folks. They're ready. Let me at. Let me go across the Jordan River. Let me possess my land. This is what's going on. And Numbers chapter 22. And the children of Israel. They set forward. They're ready to go. They set forward. Pitched in the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan by Jericho. Fast forward to 25. They abide in Shittim. They are red, they've, had, they've tasted victory. They've known what it's like to, to see murmuring in the wilderness. They did, they're not doing that now. They want victory. They've, and they've had it. And they're ready to, they set forward. They're ready to go. Little do they know what takes place in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Israel is in their tents. They're setting forward. They're getting ready to take the promised land. That's where they're at. And then the scene changes in Numbers chapter 22 from Israel. We just pause. Israel's. this is where they are. And then the scene changes, and we see Balak, the king of Moab, summoning the prophet Balaam, because I need to have somebody come curse Israel. Israel has no idea of the, of the traps that are being laid for them. In heavenly places. Israel has no idea what's going on in the spiritual realm. They're completely oblivious to it. They think we've killed Og. We've killed the Amorites. We've killed Sihon. We're going to go Jericho. Here we come. That's where they're at. They have no idea what's going on in spiritual places. They are so close. And we know the Bible story. We know what happens next. They are right across the river from the promised land. And as I read this, I just see similarities with the, with the position of the bride today. We are so close. So close. Israel was so close. Yet Satan was still, he wasn't, we do not have the luxury of playing against an opponent who only plays three quarters. Satan is going to go down to the final buzzer. And we have to also. Don't let up the guard. Because even as we're preparing for the rapture, just like Israel was prepared to go in the promised land, there is still an enemy who's preparing and plotting our downfall. 
just like God had given the Israelites in Moses a prophetic gift, everything they needed to discern the, uh, the, the deceit of the enemy, God has given us a prophetic gift to discern what's going on. But they didn't take advantage of Moses' counsel. They ignored Moses. They followed after Balaam's teaching. And their own actions brought judgment upon them. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And when Paul's talking about this in 1 Corinthians 10, he is referencing the sin that Israel is getting ready to commit with the Midianites. All of these things, how they went out to the feast, they ate and drank, they rose up to play, and then God slew of them tens of thousands. All of these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And I'm sure these young people who were there in, they're at the, they're at the Jordan River, they're in the plains of Moab, they thought the end of the ages had come upon them as well. We are here. This is what, our, what God brought our parents out of Egypt for, what we traveled the wilderness for for 40 years. This is what God's brought us for. We know what's going to happen next. They had the same sense of anticipation that we can have. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Never underestimate the deceptiveness of our enemy and the deceptiveness of our own sin nature. He says, why would we desire evil? But how often does it happen? He says that we might not desire evil as they did. Oh, curiosity killed the cat, and it kills a lot of us sometimes as well. And here is where, um, we're, we're in, in Revelation, this allusion to the doctrine of Balaam. We're going to take a look right now uh, in the next... Uh, 20, 30 minutes, what this, what this story of Balaam was all about. And, and just, just hang with me. I know we've, uh, we've probably heard it since we were cutting teeth in Sunday school, but we're trying to draw a few things out from it because it has three parts. Um, Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block. We'll take a look at this, these things that were stumbling blocks, both to Balaam and also to the Israelites, what it meant to eat things sacrificed to idols. And then lastly, committing fornication. So in Numbers 22, um, we know that Balak wanted to have Balaam come. And uh, so he sends uh, messengers to Balaam. He actually sends them, has to send them twice. And uh, the first time they come to Balaam, um, Balaam is really good at saying all the right things. Because they say, would you please, I've got all this treasure out in the camels, uh, out in the trunk. We can, we can bring it all out to you. And you just look at this and we just come and curse Israel for us. And uh, Balak says, don't let anything hinder you from coming. because I will promote you to great honor. I will do whatever you say to me. It doesn't matter. But Balaam's answer, he says all the right things. He says, if Balak gave me his house full of silver and gold, I can't do anything else than God says me to, tells me to do. That's all I can. He's really good at saying the right things. You could pay me a million dollars. I cannot do anything but what God says I have to do. He says the right stuff. I can't be- go beyond the word of my God to do less or more. And he pauses. He looks at all the gold and silver spread before him on the table he pauses but you know just stay in my uh, my guest room tonight just tarry here and I'll pray about it 
and he prays about it. And uh, he goes ahead and first chance he sends them back, second chance they come, he, pray, he prays about it again, and he, and he wakes up the next morning, and he ends up going. He ends up going. He says all the right things, but when it comes down to it, this is what they say, teaching of Balaam is all about stumbling blocks. To Balaam, God's word was just advice. That's all it was. Second opinions were okay. God gave Balaam an answer. The first time Balaam prayed, God revealed to Balaam his perfect will. Balaam didn't have to pray again, but he did. Because he thought, God's will is just advice. I'm going to seek a second opinion. That's just fine. And he looks all these, these riches spread before him. I'll be getting great honor in Balak's kingdom. What could be the influence I could have in Balak's kingdom if I am given great honor there? The riches I could have. And to Balaam, God's word is not the ultimate. Blessings to Balaam were the truest indicators of what was right. If God, look what God is providing me. He's telling, perhaps he's telling his wife, look at the Look what God is providing. He's providing all this gold, all this silver. Why would God be giving me this if it's not right for me to go? He's making a way. He's playing my plane ticket. He's giving me favor with Balak. Why shouldn't I go? Because I'm being blessed. And this is the first, this is the first part of Balaamism, the dot teaching of Balaam. He's casting a stumbling block. And the very thing that Balaam cast as a stumbling block for the children of Israel, these very principles stumbled him as well. Balaam's guiding principles will trip you up. They did back then, and they still will today. And as we look at the doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, I want to take a look at the culture that we live in, and we'll see the teaching of Balaam, the stumbling blocks that Balaam laid for the Israelites are still being laid out for us today um, by none other than this great prophetess of pop culture. If something feels right, I do it, says Oprah Winfrey. If it feels wrong, I don't. You've got to be willing to take your chances doing stuff that may look crazy to other people or not doing something that looks right to others but feels wrong to you. What's the, uh, what's the ultimate, the absolute for, for the culture? If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, do it. And it's even on some of our uh, shoes. Just do it. Don't think about it. If it feels good, just do it. If, it's good, if, if it gives you good feelings, it's good for you to do. If it gives somebody else bad feelings, they don't have to do it. That's fine with them. What's good for them may not be good for you. It's a completely different basis. If it gives you good feelings, that's a good, a good thing. We live in a world that is saturated with the very same principles that Balaam was tripped up by. Brother Branham says you can't judge God by prosperity. The world prospers. Balaam prospered. You have to judge God by his word. He gave Balaam in his first answer what his word was. Now, any of you kids, any of you ever asked mom or dad if you could have extra screen time or if you can have extra this or extra that? Did that ever happen? And mom and dad say first, perhaps no, right? 
They first say no. And then what happens after you ask them 10 or 15 more times throughout the course of the day? Might mom or dad at some point just say, I said, fine, go for it. Have your way. And you go ahead and get that response. But you know what mom and dad's perfect will was, don't you? You know that the mom and dad's perfect will was no. But after you get asked and asked and asked and asked, leave me alone. Do what you want. That's kind of what happens with Balaam here. He knows what God's perfect will is. And he keeps asking, asking, asking. Eventually God says, you know what? Go ahead and do it. But he knows that's not his perfect will. God doesn't change his mind, yet he will bless. He will let you go his permissive will, but he won't change his mind He won't change his plan. He won't change his word for you. No, sir, you've got to change. And we'll talk toward the the end today about the permissive will. But sometimes we can latch on to this. Hey, God says I could do it. That means it's good. No, God just might be letting you do what you want to do. And this idea of the permissive will isn't a way to us feel better about what we want to do. No, it's a way for God to show us what's in our hearts sometimes. You've got to change. You can't have God's word match your experience. You've got to have your experience match God's word. Balaam wanted it the other way around. And we know the story that um, Balaam goes up with Balak, and time and again uh, he tries to curse, um, but um, he he can't curse. Uh, All he can bring out are are blessing after blessing after blessing. And Balak thinking, this was not the deal. I gave you big money, big bucks, and you're supposed to deliver the curse. And Balaam says, but you know, I told you I couldn't do anything but what God told me to do. He's saying all the right things. And then Balak, Balak says, you're fired. I thought to promote thee to great honor, but you know what? God is keeping you back from honor. Isn't that how the devil likes to spin things sometimes? You don't get the promotion at work. You don't get this. You don't get all the nice friends. You don't have this or that that you're jealous of somebody else perhaps of having. You see on their social media file, that, oh, they have this or they have that. I wish I had that. And the devil says, ah, God is keeping you back because you are going to youth meeting this afternoon. You are doing this or you are doing that. God is keeping you back from honor. He plays this card with Balaam. And Balaam is riding home. He says, man, what was wrong here? God told me I could go. He told me I could do it. There's all this blessing being promised. Man, how can I get this to work? Because he hates leaving all that money there at the table. He goes home with a heavy heart. And um, he decided that this end of the story couldn't possibly be God's will for him. Because God wants us to be happy. And Balaam thinking, I don't feel very happy right now. I must have missed God's will. God wants me to have warm, fuzzy feelings. and I don't have them. So I must have messed up somewhere. So if I've messed up, I need to go back and figure out where I messed up. But he doesn't go back far enough. He just goes back to Balak. And as he's going back to Balak, he's hatching a scheme where I don't have to prophesy curses on Israel. I just have to get them to do what they want to do, and they will bring a curse upon themselves. He turns his donkey back around because he knows God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be prosperous. I've gotten this whole thing mixed up. His own, 
can you see how his, he, he is stumbling with his own guiding principles? They're leading him into sin. And he's going to use these principles then to lead Israel into sin as well. And um, this is what happens in the numbers between verses, between that first phrase in chapter 1 and the second, in, in verse 1, the second phrase in verse 1, Balaam has come, he's left, and he's come back again. All that's happened. All of this is played out in Moab, and Israel is over here thinking, let's go get them. We're gonna, we've, 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 we've defeated Bashan, we've defeated Sion, we're going to go get... We're going to go get our promised land. Now, they're in the spirit of revival here. They have no idea the cunning that's been exercised here in Moab. And we can be thinking, my, we're, we're, ready, for, we're, we're, we're ready for a rapture. We're ready for all these other things. But we still have an enemy to fight. We still have to, to, to make it through this last few minutes of the game. So now um, they, uh, they, they invite the people. Uh, this is Balaam's new strategy. They invite the Israelites to the sacrifice of their gods. And Israel says, joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of God was kindled against Israel. And you just think, they were so, so close. So close. Through the counsel of Balaam, they committed trespass, trespass against the Lord at Peor. And I just got to wondering... Baal Peor. What does that mean? Baal is Lord. But I looked at Peor, and Peor is like a, like a peak there. But um, Peor means, literal meaning of the word is gap. I thought, Lord of the gap. Lord of the gap. I thought, oh yeah, it's kind of like Lord of the loop. A gap is like a loop. And the idea of Baalimism is finding a loophole. God told me he doesn't want me to do it. But if I can just try to find a loophole so I can step right through and say, see, God, I didn't, not, I didn't curse Israel, God. Balaam can say that. He's stepping through a loop to do his own will anyway. I talked about this with my students at school because, you know, in the elementary, you have a certain rule, no running in the hallways. Well, when you make a rule, you have to be really careful how you make it because I've seen some really, really fast walking going in the hallway. But, Mr. Crook, I'm not running in the hallway. I'm, uh, you didn't say I couldn't jog in the hallway. Uh, yeah, but how we look for loops to do our own will anyway. And uh, so the, an idea of Balaamism is uh, helping people find loopholes. But if you tie that loophole long enough that loophole is going to start looking less like a loophole and more like a noose. Because who is the Lord of the loophole? The devil is. The devil is. So he wants us to get right through there, thinking, oh, we've, just like Nimrod is telling him, now you're free from the tyranny of God's law, and you can have, have real freedom. You can walk in liberty, what it's like going through this loophole and then, when it's too late. He's Lord of the loophole. I just enjoyed this little, uh, this little editorial cartoon that payday lenders are hunting around for loopholes. But this is how sometimes we as Christians can go throughout the day. We're looking around for loopholes. We're not really seeking God's will for our lives. We might just be seeking a way that we can justify doing our own will. But remember, the devil is the Lord 
of the loophole. So under this new inspiration of Balaam, the Moabites are alternating tactics. Um, They decided not to try to curse Israel. They decided instead to throw a party. Because you know what? These are our long-lost cousins that have come back and they're moving into the neighborhood because Moab is a descendant from Lot. Israel's descendants of Abraham. And it's too bad that our ancestors fell out the way they did. They quarreled over such petty issues, really. Um, they just threw a housewarming party, a family reunion, uh, decided to bury the hatchet, and everybody can just get along better now anyway, because there's always more to unite us than to divide us. Let's just focus on those good things. And that's this idea of the second part of Balaamism. The first part is um, casting a stumbling block. And have we seen how uh, when you think that God's word is not the absolute, God's word is just advice, and we can get second opinions, that's going to be a major stumbling block. When we think that blessings are the truest indicator of God's perfect will, and blessings, we can translate that into good, happy, positive, fuzzy feelings. As long as we're feeling that way about ourselves, everything must be fine. Those two ideas are major stumbling blocks. They were then, and they are still today. Well, the next part was uh, Balaam um, would uh, teach Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols. And in this way, I think we can look at it uh, being, this is a way to say, the end is justifying the means. We're going to come together, um, Lot's old family, Abraham's family, and we're just going, I know there might be some things that divide us, we're not completely one in everything, but we're family, guys. Blood is thicker than water. We both name the name of Christ, we both go to church, we have a lot of similarities, let's just worship together. And to Balaam, as long as the numbers are increasing, and he's having this, these, uh, these, these feasts at Belpior, and more and more people are coming, and numbers are the basis of any, any measurable um, data you can get for things going up, that's going to be telling us that we're successful. There's no reason to look closely at methods. If we can just get people together, we don't really have to preach, just sing a lot. If that gets everybody together, that's a good thing. But sometimes when we change the methods, that gradually is going to change the destination. And that's what we're going to see um, in, in Balaam as well. You'll see that forms of religious worship are going to be functioning as a smokescreen. Just get people together. Don't think too carefully what's going on in the back um, because we've got a good end fellowship among brethren. And Satan's goal in the age of Pergamos was to unite church and state. And when this was happening, they could build some great fancy cathedrals. It's like, wow, this is fantastic. Constantine could say, and all, the, and all the Christians say, man, we were struggling along for so long in these ramshackle buildings. We were being persecuted. And now look at this. We've got a great place. We're safe. We're not being persecuted anymore. Constantine's doing a great thing because we're not being persecuted anymore. And the purpose of Satan, whenever he's seeing a covenant being made between God and man, he wants to go in there and break that fellowship. That's what he did in Pergamos. That's what he's doing today. And that's what he was doing right in the story of Balaam. Because what he wants to do, he wants to be enthroned as God, sitting in the temple of of, of God, receiving the worship like God did. It talks about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And back in the days of Moses, Satan would have loved nothing more than to be the one seated upon that Ark of the Covenant receiving the people's worship. 
He wasn't able to get that, but he was trying to break up um, their connection to God as best he could. Brother Branham gives a, nice, a couple really good short synopses of what the doctrines of Balaam was. To see the doctrines of Balaam, go ahead, do it anyway. Whatever you want to do, just go for it. And I can hear the voice of the parent who's been asked already 15 times that day, Mom, can I please do it? And the father says, go for it. That's the way that God says, go ahead, do it your way, but don't call me right away. You, I'll, give you your, I'll give you your will, but um, that might not be his perfect will. Balaam and his doctrine was just right for them, and it met their taste exactly. With Balaam, he's changing the word to fit their taste. Redemption is all about changing us so that we love the taste of God's word. And that requires God doing a major work in our heart. Now, what did Balaam do when he found that he couldn't curse Israel? He told Balak it would be a good idea to have these people come and invite him up to the festival of the God. They had a great festival up there. He says it was a feast to worship. And what he's doing is it's it's a combination of the Moabite culture, getting the Hebrews becoming part of it, and mixing it and saying that it's good. He's saying that's exactly what Constantine did. He's He's doing the very same thing. Balaam, he's, uh, he's tell, telling the people his doctrine. We're all believers. We're Lot's daughter's children. We're just all the same. And that's what you can hear today in, ecu- in the ideas of ecumenicism. We're all churches. If they have any, name anything about Jesus Christ, they're all the same. But um, you, have to, I mean, you have to really find people today who care what God's word says. I mean, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are Christians out there in nominal churches. There are sincere believers out there. But there's not very many people who really care what God's word says and are willing to follow it. Today, all that counts amongst churches is members. But the lie was, oh, we're all just the same. And he says, they ate things sacrificed to idols. What, what is that? He says, now, I don't say this really means they're literally eating meat sacrificed to idols. Because he says, Brother Brandon says, yeah, Paul talked about that in the Corinthian church. He says, the idol doesn't even exist, so big deal. It's just, it's, just, it's just beef. If it comes down to some unconscious, you wouldn't do it for them, but nothing really in there. Brother Bram said, so it's not the meat. He says, I see it in the same light as the words of the Lord, except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Man won't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He says, you can see eating is actually partaking in the spiritual sense. So they're participating in this act of worship together, even though they've got very different bases. But they're still fellowshipping together, even though um, they really don't have as much in common as they might think they do. And I was just kind of thinking about um, Balaam. And it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of what's popular in the culture with what is in the church. And Balaam seeks to combine the two to make it more palatable to someone who hasn't become a believer just, uh, just yet. And we saw a little bit of this, um, a lot of it actually, in the recent uh, Grammy Awards back in February. Here, the Grammys are the awards given out to, uh, to singers from all different stripes. And 
you might have seen, there was a, this isn't the first time this, this kind of thing has happened, but this was very uh, uh, shocking, but you actually had an artist get up and they performed a, like a demonic seance in the midst of the Grammy Awards. And it, it, this isn't the first time this, this, that, that they've had devil worship kind of songs there. But what's going to get you is that they were Christian, they were contemporary Christian music artists at that very same performance who received awards. And when you think about that, wow. How can we have award, people who sing gospel music who sing really, really, I mean, music that maybe we've listened to, maybe we've sung some of the songs that, that could be, and then we're there in this, they, they're comfortable enough to be in the same spot where this is happening the very same evening? And this thing, my, this is, Balaam's inviting us to a feast of worship. And they talk about, we, we're really happy about our, our crossover appeal, that we're able to, I mean, it's, it's this amazing thing. You get somebody, they've just had a song like this, and somebody get up and think, I, I think that I thank Jesus Christ, he is here, and he can take all fear away. That's, that's true. But can you see how maybe, like back in the days of Moab, that the worship here, the, 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 the feast together, that can be a smokescreen to hide what's really going on? Because if you, have to, if you have to make so many compromises to appeal to the other side, are we adding too much water to the wine, perhaps? Because this, this, this is a shocking, it's a shocking image, and to think that the Christian singers were, were there and participated in other songs, That's a, that should be a wake-up call. This is a, a William Booth. I like the picture. He looks like an Old Testament prophet. Um, but as we think about what well, we just looked at the Grammys, I think his, his words here um, give some clarity to what we see today. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost. It'll be Christianity without Christ. Forgiveness without repentance. Salvation without regeneration. Politics without God. Heaven without hell. This is the man who established the Salvation Army. Um, is a real saint of God. And he looks forward, looks, he dies in 1912 and sees what's going to be coming along in the 20th century. He hit the nail on the head. Everybody wants religion. But I don't need somebody to come and change my life. I want to be religious. This is the very same thing that Nimrod was trying to teach at the very beginning. We can improve ourselves. We want to be good, we want to be good people, but we don't need God to change us. We want to be able to come just as we are, have Christ accept us just as we are, as we sing just as I am, and we leave just as we were. That's not what God's in the business of doing. He wants to change us. We all want to have forgiveness, but to say, I'm wrong? No, I'm not going to, be, I'm not going to say that, but you should forgive me anyway. We want that. And we can see that Balaamism has, uh, has uh, crept in quite a bit. 
What did Constantine really do? We wouldn't fall for today for what Constantine did back then. He's bringing in, uh, he got these, these uh, statues of the Greek gods or the Roman gods, and he just put other labels to them. That, having a statue that, that wouldn't appeal to us. What he does do, though, he's taking something that was very acceptable and understood in his culture, and he's putting Christian pixie dust on it to say, now it's okay. That's what happens today in the church. There'll be things that are acceptable in the culture today. It's not going to be a statue of Zeus like it was back then, but something that's acceptable in the culture today, and whether it be an idea, a tradition, or whatever, be something that's acceptable in the culture today and put our Christian pixie dust, and now it's good. That's what Satan's working with. And what is the, uh, the main creed of uh, a lot of churches today? Be nice. That's the great commandment. It's been summarized as moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's moralistic because we have to have some general sense of what's right and wrong. Don't get too specific with it. We have to have some general sense of there being right and wrong. It's therapeutic because it's all about making us feel good. We have to come have a self-help service on Sunday and we leave feeling better about ourselves. And it's deistic because there's, there's a God up there somewhere, but he's kind of like the, the, the great watchmaker who just winds, who creates the earth and sits back and watches it go and doesn't really get involved in their lives. One, um, one uh, um, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton in, this, in their book Soul Searching talk about the God of today as being something like a combination of the divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people feel better about themselves without becoming too personally involved in the process. The God of today is just be nice to each other. Just be nice. God made the world. These are like the five commandments of the be nice God. He made the world. He watches over it. He wants you to be good, to be nice, to be fair, He wants you to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And nice people will live happily ever after. And God's cool with giving you your space, but he'll be there if you need him. He'll be there if you want him. He's not going to come uninvited. This is the kind of God that is generally worshipped today. And uh, um, there was a a Baptist pastor, I think... um, I think in the early 2000s, named David Platt, who writes his book called Radical. He says, uh, his subtitle is Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. And the, uh, this is a screenshot from a YouTube clip about the uh, book, but he says, we are not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. And um, he says in his book, uh, this is pages 13 and 14, he says, we're starting to redefine Christianity. We're giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus that we're more comfortable with, a nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all our affection. A Jesus who's fine with nominal devotions that doesn't infringe on our comforts because, after all, he loves us just the way we are. 
but he loves us too much to keep us where we're at. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. But do you realize what we're doing at this point? He says, we're molding Jesus into our image. He's beginning to look a lot like us, because after all, that's who we're most comfortable with. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. I think he's given a really good critique of um, many churches today. And if we go back to the first illustration, the first church of Rome, the leaders have to leave, and then false doctrine comes in, paganism comes in, it's basically Satan has hacked that first church of Rome. He owns the account, and it says Jesus Christ of the portal. And he's sending all kinds of messages out in the name of Jesus Christ. And they might be singing the same songs, but he's the one who's sitting enthroned, and he's achieving his dream of sitting in the temple of God, being thrown as if he were God. And what David Platt writes in 2004 echoes what Brother Branham said in 1965. The God of this world today, the worshipped person of this world today, is Satan. And the people are ignorant of worshipping Satan. But it's Satan impersonating himself as the church. They worship Satan, thinking they're worshipping God through the church, but it's the way Satan's done it. And when I read this quote or would hear it growing up, I, ha- I, couldn't, I couldn't get my mind around it. I had, I had a problem with it. I, 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 I couldn't get it. But you look around you today, and I get it. I see, this is right on the mark. Because Satan has taken over many churches. He, the, the, the gospel is put to the side. The word of God is put to the side. And all that's preached is be nice. Be nice. Embrace your inner self. Love, God loves you as you are. You can love yourself as you are. But God, does, that's not the gospel. God doesn't, ma- God doesn't mind if he makes you feel bad about yourself a little bit. That's part of repentance. We well, have to have that. And God is, there's, there, we, we, nobody likes the doctrine of hell. But if there's no hell, heaven's meaningless. God, Satan's trying to spin it, so there's no, there's, this is the same thing Nimrod preached at the very beginning. There's no hell, there's no consequences, no nothing. You, be, you, don't, you can have religion, you don't have to be regenerated, you can have, you can have uh, forgiveness, you don't have to repent. It's all the same thing. And I, as I was studying on this, I, I, Sister Sherry LaFontaine wrote a song a couple years ago. It's in the, her latest album called Honest. But the song, Making Up Her Own God, his love means approval. Mercy now condones. God's loving kindness means never saying no. We're making up our own God as we go. His will just means you're happy. Because Christians, God means for Christians always to glow. Doing what feels right must be good for the soul. All we're doing is making up our own God as we go. 
Let's be very real. Sometimes we go by what we feel thinking. God must think the way we do. Lay aside the word. Let your conscience be your guide. You make up your own version of Christ. We blend in to win them. That's, that's that crossover appeal. We blend in to win them. Worship is a show. We're sharing a Jesus. The Bible wouldn't know. Making up our own God as we go. Peace is the answer. We all want peace. But peace and truth go together. You can't have peace without truth. Truth rocks the boat. Go tell the pastor, just go with the flow and let us make up our own God as we go. But his ways are higher than we'll ever know. We want to wake up and don't make up our own God as we go. Because whoever we choose to worship, that's who we're going to follow. And we end up wherever our leader ends up. We don't want to make up our own God. And Balaamism is all about substituting and then letting us feel good about it in the process. So Balaamism, first, stumbling blocks. God's word is just advice. You can really do with, do with it what you want, because everybody has an opinion. God has an opinion, and yeah, it is God's opinion. We can get a second opinion. It's not an ultimate, just advice. And blessings are the best indicator of God's will. If you choose a certain path and you keep getting raises at your work, that must be a good path because increasing numbers of anything, that'll be a sign of being God's will. But he doesn't want you to go back and look at the word of God. And then gradually, it'll be a, you'll be eating things sacrificed to idols. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be going out and, uh, and whining and dining with the boss, but you'll be in fellowship with people you really don't have any, mean, any business being in fellowship with. Two can't walk together except they be agreed. Eventually, one will be pulling harder on you than the other will and be leading off the path. And finally, it led Israel to the place where they were committing fornication, where they were marrying, entering in marriage and relationships with people they had no business entering into relationships with. And gradually, it got to that point. And it was a, it was, it was, it was a great sin that, that led them there. And it happens on the cusp of entering the promised land. And all because of this wonderful thing that we call the permissive will of God. And uh, I'm going to put caution around the permissive will. Sometimes we can think, and I've thought it growing up in the message, and it wasn't really clear to me um, for a long time, but we, have the, we hear the statement, the permissive will makes the way for God's perfect will. So the permissive will can't be all that bad, right? It's just a detour. And we could take the detour might not be God's perfect will for us, but it'll get us back there eventually. That's how we often will think about... Has anybody thought about the permissive will in that way? Or am I the only one? Yeah, I might be the only one. But maybe we've, maybe we've heard of it before. The doctrine of Balaam which starts off with these three statements, I think. God's permissive will makes way for his perfect will. And then we have the other statement. All things work together for good, even my mistakes. So... God must be a happily ever after kind of God. And we all live in the kingdom of a Disney kind of God, where every story has this happily ever after kind of end. 
But this is the doctrine of Balaam. I want to take a, a few minutes talking about this doctrine, of this idea of the permissive will, because um, it isn't, uh, I don't think it's always well understood. The truth is that God's permissive will eventually is going to cut through our excuses to get to core issues. Because Balaam was saying, yes, I can only do whatever God says for me to do. I can't go beyond it, can't do more or less. That's what Balaam's saying. And God's listening and says, wow, Balaam, this is really good what you're saying. I'm not sure you've got this as well as you have it. So God engineers a circumstance to reveal to Balaam what's in Balaam. And he lets him go. And then God's warning Balaam along the way. He even lets the donkey speak because God loves us that much. Even when we're getting off the path, he still gives us a warning. And Balaam could have turned back then. God keeps Balaam from ever cursing Israel. Balak sends Balaam away. And Balaam could have just gone back to his home and never gone back to Balak. Because Balak, God was, my goodness, God's mercy. He was letting Balak give mercy to Balaam, but Balaam didn't see it as God's mercy. He said, oh, Balak is God's, what God says through Balak is God is keeping me from honor. God is keeping blessing from me. But Balaam could have heard it as God's warning to him and never gone back. But he didn't. He's tripped up by his own guiding principles. So this permissive will, it's always, it gets to the core issues. But there is always a cost to God's permissive will. And the key part is that your refusal to do God's perfect will will not prevent God from accomplishing his purpose. That sentence is important. That's what it means when it says the permissive will will not get in the way of God's perfect will or will bring about God's perfect will. God's perfect will is going to come to pass. If I were to ask these two gentlemen here, would you please take those chairs and I'll move them one foot forward? You say, no way, that's stupid. They're right there against the wall. No, I'm not going to do that. And this illustration, I'm God, and I've asked these guys, will you do, my perfect will is for those chairs to come one foot forward. No, I'm not going to do that. I want to go play instead. You go run out and go, on the, go outside and play. And they're engaging in the, in the permissive will now, because I don't snap them with lightning bolts. Like, no, you, you have to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. But my perfect will is those chairs all be moved one foot forward. So later I go out and ask somebody else, will you go move those chairs one foot forward? And the assembly says, sure, I'd love to. And she goes, move each one one foot forward. These guys did not do my perfect will. I let them go outside and play. That was the permissive will. But they're not going to go out to Dairy Queen and get the ice cream afterwards. They're not going to get a reward for it. They're not, they're, they have no part in moving that forward. This young lady, though, she does the perfect will of God. She moves them all one foot forward. She goes to Dairy Queen, gets ice cream, and uh, that's a great end. So the permissive will of God, these guys don't get the ice cream. They don't get any reward. So they are still outside playing in sin on the playground. They're doing the, they're doing the wrong thing, but I let them. So we say, hey, it's the permissive will of God. But that doesn't hinder God's will from happening. But it does affect their role in what God's will is. And that's the key part. God will let us have our own will sometimes. 
be careful what we pray for. Especially we're praying for it a lot. Lord, would you please let me have this? Would you please? Let me? God says no. Just accept the no. It won't. It won't change His perfect will from happening. But it might change the role that we get in God's perfect will. Anybody remember the story of Esther, when Mordecai tells her you need to fast and pray for three days. Uh, Mordecai tells her, you need to go and talk to the king because there's this terrible things that will be happening. You need to go before the king. Maybe God has raised you up for just such a time as this. And then Mordecai says, but if not, if, God does, if you don't decide to do this, God will raise up redemption from another place because that's the perfect will of God. God will do it. Esther has a choice. Will she go with the flow of the perfect will of God? Or will she say, no, I, I can't. I'm too afraid to go before the king. I, I can't do it. She would sidestep it then. God would still redeem the Jews somehow, but her role in that would be different. That's what it means when we say the permissive will makes a way for the perfect will. God's will is still done, but that doesn't mean I'm going to have the same role in it I would have had if I had just done God's will from the beginning. That makes sense? That's very, two very different things. Where are we at? Brother Branham says that God will give you the desire of your heart. He promised that. But just let your desire be the word of God. Let your desire be his will, never your own will. Because God does give you desire's heart. My people wouldn't hearken to my voice. Israel would none of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lusts. And they walked in their own counsels. And the next verse. Um, oh, that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways. Because God looks, oh, I, they want this so bad, I'm going to let them have it. Oh, I just see the way they're going. I just wish they would have listened from the beginning. Don't play with the permissive will of God. Our steps into God's permissive will won't prevent his perfect will from being accomplished. That's the key. But our time in the permissive will could affect our role in the unfolding of God's perfect will. The permissive will is nothing to be trifled with. Brother Branham says, I won't deny that God spoke uh, um, to the woman preacher or somebody else teaching false doctrine or whatever. But it was just like when he spoke to Balaam the second time. As he knew that Balaam wanted his own heart's desire above the word, and he gave it to him, yet all the while in the end, God still had his own way. Even so today, God tells folks to go ahead in their own heart's desires, for they've already rejected the word, but the will of God will be done regardless. That's how the perfect will every time will triumph over the permissive will. God sends prophetic insight. He sent prophetic insight to Moses, to Israel. They're, they're in Moses. So that Moses, he had the answer when Balaam's coming with his teaching. And God sent prophetic insight to us today so that we know what time it is, what we should be looking for and expecting. The, uh, the Balaam church, 
the call of today, all that counts among the churches today is members. It's all they want is members. Numbers increase. No matter what the numbers are, as long as they're increasing. The Balaam doctrine going around today is we're just the same. We're all Christians trying to bring unity by politics and organization. But the end time message has a very different focus. The beauty of the church is not in the structure or the number of people in the congregation. The beauty of the church is the character of the people. The end time evangelist message is from Malachi 4, a restoring a message that goes forth of the last days, not to bring them to a creed, but to jerk them out of the creeds and bring them back to the original faith of the Pentecostal fathers. And it's important to be in the message and know what God's word and will is for today so that we can see, ah, this, 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 this invitation to unity is, 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 is false, but it's not around the word of God. But if it's around God's word for, for, for today, that's one that we can be certain of and can build on. We want to be, want, want to be there in what, what God has sent us for today. Because just like with Israel, they were so close. Just on the other side of the Jordan River. We're so close. And we don't want, it's so easy to let the culture affect us. This, these ideas of Balaam are all through the culture. And may God just be uh, gracious to us to give us that discernment. Perhaps we could, as we close and the musicians can come, open up to Revelation chapter 2. And verse 16. This is the end of the message of the church of Pergamos. It says, Repent, or else I'll come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. God is going to be judging that false church of Pergamos. And he's uh, telling this uh, true church, Make sure you're not there when I come. Be separated, because that separation is salvation. You don't want to be there mixed among them. Remember one of the sons of uh, Jehoshaphat? He was hanging around Ahab too much, and when Jehu came to execute judgment, um, Ahab's son was killed, and Jehoshaphat's son was killed because they were hanging out together. They didn't have the message that we, we, we need to be separated. So that's the first part, repent. And then he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to the, of the hidden manna, I will give a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. There's a reward to the overcomer. This, what we're going through here on earth, is the closest thing a Christian will ever get to hell. It gets far better from here. We don't want to hang around here. It's worth striving for. It's worth fighting for. And in the Church Age book, when Brother Branham talks about the reward for pilgrimage, he tells the story of how he went beyond the curtain of time. And it's a wonderful place. There's no smartphones there. There's no YouTube there. There's no Netflix there. There's no Pure Flix there. There's nothing that will distract us. It's just a sacred, beautiful place. There will be holy worship. It will be a wonderful place. And I just think it's a wonderful thing. We want to to keep that before us. We want to strive for that. And don't let Balaam's principles trip us up. Amen. Um, We could just sing that song... um, Brother John saying this morning, I give myself away. I give myself away. You can just play that. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, how, how good you were to Balaam. You sent warning after warning after warning to him. Lord, 
how good you were to the children of Israel. Moses was right there. And you, you provided everything Israel needed to overcome, Lord. And even today when things are so deceptive, you sent a message that we can, we can see with, with clear insight what is right and what's wrong. We can also witness the blurring of so many lines, Lord. Father, I just pray that you would help us to see that you are so much more than a be nice kind of God. You have something so much more for us than just loving us as we are. You love us in spite of the way that we are so that you can transform us into what you want us to be, Lord. Father, I just pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to look through our lives and if there's the areas that we need to repent of or we see the influence of Balaam upon, O oh God, that we'd step away from that, that we don't want to have anything to do with that, Lord. Because that separation was uh, just in Goshen. Israel was separated from Egypt. They were there in Goshen. That separation was their salvation from plagues. Lord, I pray, O God, that you would help us to separate unto you, O God. Lord, I pray that you would be with each each family here today, Lord. Be with Brother Barry and Sister Becky, Lord. Just give them a blessing where they are and travel them where his home, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps we could stand and just... uh, Sing this together. I give myself away. I give myself away so you can use me. I give myself away. I give myself away. So you can use me, here I am, here I stand, oh my life is in your hand, and Lord, I
beautiful I give myself away so you can use me it's not my message it's your message amen we don't want to be like Balaam Lord we want you to use me let me take your word not my word but your word man I really enjoyed that this morning let's turn um let's sing give me Jesus I believe the key of C give me Jesus in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, give me I'm alone. Now when I am alone, oh, when I am alone, when I am alone, give me Jesus. Give me you, Lord. Give me
Amen. As we get ready to close this morning, this afternoon, um, don't forget that we have children's choir right after the service. So um, all children, uh, please stay around. And um, let's get away and get our lunches and get back so that the children, uh, 13 and up, young adults, can have a meeting this afternoon. And let's just uh, be in prayer for the rest of the um, of our gatherings here today. As you, um, as you uh, begin to leave, let's just worship him for a few minutes and sing, I Surrender All. Again, in the key of, key of C here, I Surrender All. And just... Let's surrender our hearts to him, not just today, but as we enter into the work week. Amen. All to Jesus.
Amen. You're free to go this morning. We'd like to see you back on Wednesday nights. If we don't see you before then, but God bless you. And um, just enjoy the fellowship with the bride. And um, I, I pray that each and every one of you will take these words that Brother Rapp spoke to us this morning. Take it into your heart. And Lord Jesus, we're not looking for you to bend your will to our way of living. We want to build our will humbly to what you desire first and foremost, setting ourselves aside, following your true perfect will, not seeking your permission, but seeking what you want us to do. Amen. I surrender.